Oh dear, shall I tell you or not? <laughs> I was not feeling too well yesterday. And this morning I woke up and I said, Oh dear, pray that I'll be okay. I've had an upset stomach and so on. So I suggested to Ruth, let's let's get something to eat when we get to Oconomowoc. That's not so far. <laughs> That's right. So I don't know what was in my mind when we went to Oconomowoc. That's where the church is, isn't it? But that's another church. <laughs> so we went into a little beanery there and got some food. And I said, we're a little early yet. I've got some time. Let's just sit in the car and look at the Bible a little first. And Ruthie got out the letter that was there. She said, Oconomowoc? I said, what in the world am I doing in Oconomowoc? <laughs> I know good and well it's the Falls Bible Church. That couldn't be in Oconomowoc. So here we are. <laughs> Please forgive us and understand. I, and the worst of it is, I don't know now whether that was old age or whether I just wasn't feeling well. So uh, at any rate, the Bible says forgive one another from the heart, so please do that. Oh, I don't know what to tell you about Brain Bible Society. The Lord has really been good to us. Uh, it's a big task, I'm sure the biggest I have ever undertaken to write a commentary on Romans. That's not the easiest book in the world, though it is a wonderful book, full of thrills. But still, we have Brother Jordan with us now, and he's such a great help, but still the buck stops here, you know. And when there are problems or difficult letters and so on, generally it's Mr. Stam, Mr. Stam. So it's hard sometimes and a little frustrating to get the time we still should. Thank the Lord we have much more now than we did. And I'm well past the eighth chapter. I won't tell you how far, but well past the eighth chapter because I'm going to speak on part of the eighth chapter this morning. But the Lord's been good to us. We've gotten letters that are just so wonderful lately. Uh, two pastors, brand new pastors, coming to rejoice in the message of grace. Hope to be at the Berean Bible Fellowship Conference in June. And uh, we've just got somebody to take Ricky Kurt's place. I think you read in the searchlight that Brother Kurt, he is called now to a full-time ministry. And he's been a real help to us, a wonderful lad. And... Uh, but thank the Lord we already have somebody and somebody we think is just going to fit in beautifully into a very difficult job. So we're very grateful. There's much more we can tell you. If you don't receive the Berean search site, all you have to do is ask or write your name and address down on a piece of paper, but write clearly. Those people down there can't read very well, so uh, try to write just as clearly as you can. You know, I had never dreamed in all my wildest dreams I never would have thought that I'd be someday occupying the same platform as our beloved brother Paul. I had never thought that. But uh, thank God you have a Paul here that stands like our beloved brother Paul did, another beloved brother. And it's just very nice to be with you. And I'm sorry if I caused you any anxiety. I didn't mean to. And uh, we'll try to forget it all as we go into the 8th of Romans. Did you have scripture reading? Yeah. 
You didn't. All right. Let's go to Romans 8 then and uh, relax now and uh, read from the 31st verse to the end. Let's read it responsibly. I'll read verse 31, you 32, and so on. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us Who shall I anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I suppose you who know Christ as your Savior and do some Bible reading must agree with me that there's not a place in the Bible where the wavering Christian can find better assurance than this passage that we've just read right here. You know, as I have been studying Romans, I begin to feel as though it's almost three books in one, three volumes. And the first volume ends with the end of chapter 8. That's the doctrinal part of Romans. And it's wonderful to see the apostle step by logical step bringing us to the wonderful truths of chapter 8. First in chapter 2, verse 1, after arraigning the whole world guilty before God, even the man who so glibly can look down on others and find fault with them, he says, Therefore thou art inexcusable. Thou art inexcusable. It reminds me, of the time when the Lord Jesus was closeted in that upper room with his twelve apostles. And there they are, just those thirteen people. And the Lord said to them, One of you. Not somebody out there. Not somebody. One of you. One of you shall betray me. No wonder it says they were most upset. One after another said, Lord, is it I? Is it I? And that's to their credit that they said that. They weren't overconfident. Well, this is something like that in chapter 2 and verse 1, where he says, You, therefore, this is a logical conclusion. Therefore, thou art inexcusable. There's no excuse 
for the sins you have committed. Then in chapter 3, verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. What good if I break one law and keep another? What if the policeman has me for speeding and says, Well, I was just at a parking meter and I, I didn't stay overtime, <laughs> you know. But that doesn't erase the wrong that I've done. A man has killed somebody and says, I promise never to do it again. And in fact, I've never done it, never, never before. That doesn't make any difference. You've broken the law, and therefore uh, there is no justification by the deeds of the law. And then that wonderful passage from Romans 3, 21 to 28 tells us, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. And he tells about Christ's righteousness, his righteous act at Calvary, and his righteousness imputed to us. And he comes to the next conclusion. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And you can hardly want a more wonderful passage of Romans as far as salvation is concerned than chapter 321 through 5-1 and even through chapter 5. Chapter 5 it comes to the next conclusion. Therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God. I was only a young lad when I was saved 14 years of age but I remember that day very well. In those days, you know, the missing ingredient in evangelism was not missing. They did preach conviction of sin. They did preach uh, the condemnation of sin. And one day, I'll never forget it, I went to hear a blind evangelist at the Star, the Star of Hope Mission. <clears throat> His name was Houston. And, uh, oh, he told us. He read that passage in, in Revelation 20 where the unbelieving, the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and so on will be cast into the lake of fire. And he asked, why does this begin with the word the fearful? Why do the fearful head the list? And he showed how that meant, that word meant the cowards. And he says, if you're not saved tonight, you're a coward. You won't face up to your condition." You will face up to the fact that you are on your way to hell. And he really told us that night. And my brother and I, my brother 16 and I 14, just about a year and a half apart, we were really under conviction. And we were so afraid that we might have to sit through the invitation that we both went out during the last hymn and we left and started on our way home. We were so under conviction, we didn't say a word to each other. But I'll tell you what happened when Dad got home. One of the, you know, these women in the area used to have sort of a club. If I saw one of your boys do something wrong, I'd call you up and tell you, you see. So uh, this woman called up, and my dad answered. He said, Mr. Stam, I'm awfully sorry to have to tell you this, but I think you'd want to know. I think your boys, Neil and John, have been drinking. That's how under conviction we were. We were actually 
not paying attention to how we were walking home, almost staggering in this woman, thought we'd been drinking, you see. But I'll never forget, that, that night it was easy for my brother to lead me, another brother to lead me and my brother John to the Lord. And I, from that day to this, I have never once worried about my eternal destiny. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, because of all of this that is true, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know the fifth logical step, another therefore. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because God sees us now in his beloved Son. Now then, <clears throat> let's go to verse 31, <clears throat> or let's go to verse 22 first. Uh, if I were going to give a topic to my message this morning, I think I'd call it the Grand Climax. <laughs> The passage we just read but before we go to verse 31 <clears throat> excuse me let's look first at something of the the heart of this eighth chapter <clears throat> there are two things here in Romans 8 that we know for a surety as we know Christ is our Savior number one Verse 22, <clears throat> for we know, I'm sorry, <clears throat> I'm, uh, my voice is changing, I'm just going to be 16 tomorrow, then it'll be okay. <laughs> Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within our, we don't grumble, but we do groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our body. Now that's one thing we know. We know it by observation, we know it by experience. The whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. You get the purport of those last two words? The times of refreshing haven't yet come to this world. All those bright promises of Old Testament prophecy have not yet been fulfilled. It looked as though hopes were very bright when Christ came, and then of course they crucified him, but he prayed, Father, forgive them. And they were offered the return of Christ and his glorious reign, if only they would repent. But they didn't. And those blessed times did not come, have not, thank you, brother, come right up, you're welcome. <laughs> those uh, blessed times didn't come and have not yet come. All those that the Lord Jesus and the twelve apostles healed, every one of them died again. They would have gone right into the millennium alive and well, but they didn't. They died again. And those blessed times have not yet come. And we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. 
I wonder if it's ever occurred to you that all the basic sounds of creation are in the minor key. The ocean roars and the wind moans and sighs. Uh, wild animals scream and, and roar. Uh, the owl hoots and the, the uh, uh, parrot screeches and uh, the dove mourns. And a few song, a few birds sing, sing. The only few bars. It's always the same. I know that because my wife always loved biology, and she hears a cardinal when nobody else does, and she whistles back at them, and they whistle back at her. Believe it or not, but they don't really sing. They they don't have happy hearts. It's just part of their part of their makeup. This whole creation, beloved, still groans and travails in pain, and not only they, but we also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. God has left us in this world with all the troubles that other people bear, practically all of them, so that we might be uh, in the better, in the in so much better situation to witness to them. Well, that's one thing we know. But there's another thing we know, verse 28. Turn, please, to verse 28. We know that all things work together, and, beloved, not by chance, by design. All things work together, not luckily, but designedly, purposely. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Isn't that wonderful in all this turmoil and sadness and trouble and gloom and despair and hatred and, and all that, that we know that God is working everything out for our good as well as for his own glory. And Brother Drew, Pastor Edward Drew of Patterson, New Jersey, many years ago told a story that I haven't forgotten. A young man had a fine position in an organization that had uh, outposts in many parts of the world, even in the Arctic zone. And one day the board of directors called him in and they said to him, we want you to go up to our northernmost outpost. You're going to have to use plane and ship and train and the last part, dog sled. Oh, he said, that's a challenge. When? They said, we want you to start tomorrow. Tomorrow, he said. Well, I don't have the slightest idea how to prepare for such a journey. I don't know what clothing to wear. Uh, of course, I haven't made any reservations for any, for any travel. They said, we know you don't know, but we do. <laughs> and every bit of it has been planned right to the end of the journey and back. So don't you worry. You just be ready tomorrow. Well, it's that way with us, isn't it? Thank the Lord he's planned every bit of the journey for us. He's working all things together for good to them that love God and to them for the call according to his purpose. But notice please here, he says this uh, in verse 31, that's really the beginning of our 
of our challenge, of our grand climax, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And it's something like that in verse 8. We know, we don't have to guess or wonder or pray that God will work things out for our good. We know it. We know it by faith. His word assures us that it's so. And the little illustration I gave you is really, it falters. It's not enough. When I read this, I feel more like John Newton when he wrote that great hymn. And one line I'll rip, I sang it since I was a little child. Thou mayest smile at all thy foes. Isn't that beautiful? Smile at your foe. What can they do to you? You're protected and cared for by him. He's made all the arrangements. So then we come to the great challenge. Verse 31. Who shall lay anything to the... I beg your pardon. Uh, what should we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? There is again, it breathes uh, uh, challenge, it breathes uh, uh, confidence, it breathes debate. Who shall, uh, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? It's defiance in that verse. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not freely with him give us all things also? Now, this is an argument that he's going to develop a little further. But the point is that if he didn't spare his own son, if he gave to us or for us his own precious only son, what would he withhold from us? He that spared not his own son. Really, in this verse, there are several pairs of phrases. Uh, oh, I'd say a half a dozen phrases anyway that Brother Paul, you could take a week on each one. <laughs> Morning and evening. Let's see some of them. Spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, with him, freely give all things. There you go, six of them. <laughs> but two of them, I think, really stand out. Spared not and delivered up. They have very special significance. When you think that Christ was God's as I've just said, his only and beloved son. When you think of his essential majesty, angels rush to do his bidding in heaven. When you think of his holiness, his sinlessness. When you think of the uh, shame and disgrace he had already born here on earth. When you think of his prayer, Father, if it please thee, let this cup pass from me. When you think of his strong crying and tears. When you think of the terrible suffering 
and shame that the cross involved. And yet he says, he spared not his own son. That has a harsh and stern effect, doesn't it? I can understand how even a, a forgiving and a, a, a merciful God spared not the old world with the days of Noah and all that vile wickedness. That I can understand. I can understand how he spared not the angels that sinned. I can understand how he spared not Israel after he had held out his hand all day long to a disobedient and, and gainsaying people. He finally gave them up. I can understand that. But to think that he spared not his own son but gave him for me, that is utterly incomprehensible but thank God it's true what a wonderful God what a wonderful Savior we have then there are the words delivered up he that spared not his own son but delivered him up you know that word well even in the English I can sort of feel I hope you do in those words delivered up somebody holding something behind him and he doesn't want to give it you see but finally he delivers it up. That's the thought of the word. To give over as a last necessity. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Beloved, if a million worlds could have paid the debt of sin, God would gladly have robbed the heavens of them. Or he could easily have created a million more. But nothing, nothing except a moral price can pay a moral debt. Christ had a hang there at Calvary as a sinner, as the very embodiment, the very personification of sin. And they had to stand there and shake their heads at him. Shame, shame on him. That had to be the price, yea, even death had to be the price for our sin. But that's not really the argument. The argument is, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What would he withhold from us, beloved? Let's remember it when we pray. Let's be more childlike in our praying, knowing that he wants to do what is best for us. The trouble is that often, so very often, we don't know what to pray for. Verse 27 says, we know not what we should pray for as we ought. That's what we don't know. But we do know that he's working it all out for our good. So let's obey Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't be anxious about everything, about anything, but in everything, by prayer, and supplication, already giving thanks, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and, and what? And whatever you ask for in faith, he will give you? No, no, thank the Lord. That would be tragedy today, wouldn't it? No. He says, and the peace of God that passeth understanding will keep, will guard, will garrison your hearts and minds 
through Christ Jesus. Well, then let's go on here. On here. He says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? In verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. What matter what anybody else says? What matter if the devil accuses, and he does, he's the accuser of the brethren. What matter if the law condemns? Christ says, why, I nailed that to the cross. I took it out of the way. It was against you. It was contrary to you. And I took it out of the way, nailing it to my cross. And as to the devil, I made a show of him openly, triumphing over him at Calvary. Read it in Colossians 2, 14 and 15. And what if our hearts and minds join in condemning us? Ah, then we need this passage here. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. I don't understand it. How such love was extended to me, I don't understand it, but I know it, I believe it, and the joy has filled my heart. Who is he that condemneth? Now, please notice in verses 33 and 34, we have a fourfold assurance. Listen. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Number one, it's God the justifier. Number two, Christ died. Would he condemn you? He paid the debt of your sin. It is Christ that died. Number three, yea, rather, that is risen again. We had an old man used to preach to us in the Star Hope Mission at seated 900, and it would be jammed full when old James McKendrick preached. He was so simple, but that's what got the crowd. They understood him. He wasn't like some of these theologians, oh, he's so deep because he couldn't make himself understood. But uh, James McKendrick could. And he say, now tonight, I'm going to speak to you on how God puts our sins away. And then tomorrow night, how he puts our doubts and fears away. Simple as that, and his messages were simple. But he was greatly, greatly used. And he used to preach on this passage. Who is he that condemneth? Christ died, yea, rather he's risen again. And here's what made me think of James McKendrick. He used to say, Christ died to pay the debt, and he rose to prove that the debt was paid. The death of Christ is the payment. His resurrection is the receipt. And that's true. It's as simple as that. So then, here you have it. It's God that justified. Christ died, yea, rather he's risen again, but more than that, he's also at the right hand of God and maketh intercession for us. That's a beautiful truth, beloved. Christ at the right hand of God making intercession for us. You say, why? Why does he have to make intercession for us? I thought God himself justified us. Wouldn't the Father keep us secure if Christ didn't pray for us? Ah, it's wonderful to understand the nature of his intercession. Uh, Hebrews 9.24 says, He appears at the right hand of God for us. His very presence there 
is a strong plea in my behalf and yours, beloved. Uh, Hebrews 7.25 He is able to save unto the uttermost them that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. His very being there, his very presence at God's right hand is powerful intercession. Five bleeding wounds he bears, said John Wesley. Five bleeding wounds he bears received at Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. You see, those wounds, and he's the only one in heaven that'll have the the marks of sin or the marks of suffering on him. Christ alone will be there with nail-pierced hands. Ah, but those are the hands that have pleaded our security in Christ. Well, there's so much to say, and that clock does go. Well, I'm sorry, but it's all right. But you know, there are many... I'm sorry for them, and if any of you are here, please, I don't mean to be facetious at all, but I'm sorry if you don't see the great truth of the believer's eternal security in Christ. But some have, some have thought that's a dangerous doctrine, then people can live like they want to, so on. They don't understand it, really. But I've noticed this. I could name you three people right now whom I have known <clears throat> who have uh, argued against the security of the believer. Oh, every virtue give them, they counter with something else. <clears throat> they were sure that we were not just eternally secure in Christ. But do you know what? The three that I'm thinking of all came to see it when they got to verse 35. We had a, years ago, we had a Christian training cruise up the Hudson River. 34 young men between 18 and 25, and uh, the rest of us preachers, we were captain and first mate and all. We were in the Navy for a while, you didn't know that. But anyway, we went up that beautiful Hudson River, and there was one lad could not see eternal security. And he fought it tooth and nail. He was kind and gracious, but he could not see it. He thought that was so dangerous. Then people, Christians, would go out and live just any kind of life that a sinner might want to lead. Well, one night we had a meeting planned for Yonkers along the, along the Hudson in New York. And a lot of uh, <coughs> fundamentalist churches were joining. And the city had been so helpful, they fixed the whole park up that was, it was, the seats were like a church, you know, these park benches, and they had a pavilion there, and they put a piano on it for us, and we had a great, great time. The Lord was with us in a special way, but this young lad had not gone along. It was his turn to wash the dishes that night. And he said, no, no, we wanted them to come. But he said, no, no, when it's your turn, you do it. It's my turn tonight, I do it. And we couldn't persuade him. He had to do those dishes. But the Lord was in it. The Lord was working all things out for his good, that's certain. 
because we came back all excited and thrilled about the meeting and I can still see the fellows as they jumped aboard ship. It was an old sub chaser. We had um, altered it and fixed it up into a place where it had about 40 beds, you know. But uh, they jumped aboard and this lad had been sitting under a light reading his New Testament. And when the fellows jumped aboard, they were saying, Oh, we wish you'd been there, Tom. Tom looked up and was almost crying. He could hardly speak. And they said, What's the matter? He said, Oh, fellows, I see it. I see it now. He had been reading Romans 8, and he got to verse 35. Oh, look at this. It's beautiful. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Beloved, there's the solution. My Christian friend worrying whether you'll make it finally or not. Here's the solution. Not your love to Christ, it's his love to you. Isn't it amazing that Paul, who suffered so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, not once does he tell us about his love for Christ. He thought that wasn't worth anything. <laughs> he could never forgive himself for what he did to Israel. His heart constantly went back in tears almost for Israel. I'm studying about that now in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Ah, but the love of Christ, he was always talking about that. And do you know, that's the grace way, beloved. That's the way, this is the only real incentive for godly living. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, not the law commanding us, grace teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present evil world. Well, here you have it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And you know, Paul always telling us about the love of Christ, even in his own ministry. As you may think I'm a little wrong up here, read it in 2 Corinthians 5.13. You may think I'm a little radical or over-intenser. No, the love of Christ, not my, my, not my love to Christ. It's not because I love him so much I do that, no. It's because he loves me so. The love of Christ constraineth, and that word is a, that word is a nautical word. It bears me along like an ocean tide. Well, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he says, uh, he names the different things that one might think would. No, 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 he says. Verse 36, as it is written, for thy sake we're killed all the day long. Last night I spent some more time. I've spent time with that verse before. But last night I just sat down and I pondered and I looked up what verses I could that might throw light on it. Listen, I can only assume that it means that he was always, again and again, he was killed, as it were. They wanted him out of the way. The Jews and godless Gentiles and robbers and perils he, he endured among his own countrymen. He was killed all the day long. He's, I'm like, we're like sheep counted for slaughter. We're not going to live anyway. Oh, but he said, nay, look at verse 37. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Two nations fight, and who wins? Generally nobody. 
two kids fight in the back alley and who wins? Nobody. <laughs> they both go away, with, go away, I'm sorry, with hurt feelings at each other. Nobody really wins. But thank God in our struggles we win. <laughs> and we're more than conquerors. These things, Paul says, the persecutions and the difficulties and all of that, they brought him closer to Christ. They brought him, that's why he, of all men, knew best how to speak of the fellowship of his suffering. He knew best what, uh, how to say to the Colossians, Oh, I rejoice in my sufferings for you because I'm filling up the sufferings of Christ. He knew. He says, Oh, these things and all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. So not to leave this point yet, the law says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. The Lord asked the, the lawyer, What does the Bible say? What is the law? What's, a, what's the real essence of the law? That's it, said the Lord. Love the Lord God with all you have. That's what the law says. Thou shalt. But grace doesn't say that. Grace says, Oh, he loves you. I'm glad we ever chose that sign for the side of our building. God loves you. Christ died for you. Believe and be saved. And that's the grace way. We go to the lost and we say, whatever your sin, whatever your depravity, God loves you. Christ died for you. And love begets love. First John 4, 19, uh, we love him because he first loved us. Well, I've got to close, but just look, please, at verse 38 and 39. Here Paul gathers together, if you please, all the different forces and elements of the whole structural creation. Time, space, and matter. He gets them all together, and he says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, now get this, which is in Christ Jesus. He was the embodiment. He was the personification of God's love for us. And how grateful I am for uh, it's a sign over North Shore Church, but it also is a most important passage of Scripture. Paul says, this is the gospel. If anyone here is not saved, listen carefully now. This is the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. This is the gospel. By which ye are saved. How that, and what's the basic element there? Christ died for our five little words. Paul says, I'd rather speak five words that can be understood than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Well, here are five words I'm sure you can understand. Christ died for our sins. Isn't that wonderful? What a way for that first book of Romans to close. What a way for that volume to close. I'm persuaded that nothing anywhere shall ever threaten the blessed security that is mine in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, dear brother.